You're listening to TIP. I actually did a project with a group of students where we designed and then built a house. So we, it was a modular house. We actually built it in pieces and trucked it to the site and craned it into place. And then that whole summer we built it. And I was like, this is amazing. Like I'm building the thing I drew. Hey, everybody. In this week's episode, I got to sit down with Marilyn Modinger to chat about her career in architecture and academia her early days in construction as a general laborer and project manager, what it was like traveling around the world studying vernacular architecture, and how it's been renovating a 300-year-old family farmhouse. Marilyn is the founding principal of Runcible Studios and has been an adjunct professor for over 10 years where she's taught design studios, construction detailing, building science and theory, and design build courses. She previously practiced architecture at UTL in Boston and worked as a construction project manager, contractor, and estimator in Virginia. Marilyn earned a BS in architecture, a BA in history, and a master's in architecture from the University of Virginia, where she won several awards for her teaching and academic works. Marilyn has led a super adventurous life, and this episode covers a lot of territory about the architectural path, project management, renovating old homes, and even what her own real estate portfolio looks like. And so, without further delay, let's get into this week's episode with Marilyn Modinger. You are listening to Real Estate 101 by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Patrick Donnelly, interview successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Real Estate 101 podcast. I'm your host today, Patrick Donnelly. And with me today is a really special guest I've been following on real estate Twitter for quite some time, Marilyn Modinger. Marilyn, welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. So great to be here. I'm really happy to have you on here today. I've been spending a lot of time on your Twitter feed. There's a huge amount of information on there. And I just wanted to thank you for all of that. Like, it's, There's a wealth of knowledge that for anybody that's listening, check out Marilyn's Twitter feed. You can learn a ton. I just wanted to kind of start off like early days of Marilyn. And I wanted to hear how you first got like the real estate bug. I know that there was a children's poem that you've actually named your company after, which we'll get into. But I wanted to hear if you had any other influences like family members or teachers or how you maybe knew early on that real estate architecture was going to be your thing. Well, I didn't actually have very many influences I didn't know anyone who was an architect. I didn't know anyone who was in real estate. All I knew is from my earliest, earliest memories, I just loved buildings. So what I did when I was a kid was make forts and build buildings. So I had like dolls, but I never like dressed them up and played with them in sort of the traditional way. I would just make them houses and that transitioned into drawing houses. And I would sneak pieces of paper into my elementary school and draw portions of a city and then take them home and tape them all together and have a city like as big as my wall. I don't know where I got any of this. I just always wanted to draw cities and I made land plots that I would replat them and like show little like towns or like different subdivisions of like buildings and things. And then I would get uh, floor plan plan books from the grocery store and a little pot of white out and white out all the walls and redraw them where I wanted to. And I just did all this for fun. I thought it was really fun until someone said, you know, that's actually like, those are jobs. Like you could have one of those as a career. And 
I'd never thought of that until someone mentioned it. So was that in high school that that happened, that somebody directed you towards architecture school or how did that come about? You ended up going to where? University of Virginia? Virginia, yeah. So I remember taking uh, aptitude tests, maybe middle school or early high school, career aptitude tests. And my two top scoring careers, it was equally balanced between actress and car mechanic. So I was like, all right, well, that's cool. I hadn't really thought of either of those as a profession for me, but I didn't get the most support ever in high school for it just because I think, I mean, I was told flat out that girls don't go to architecture school. So I found it on my own and my parents are super supportive. And then I had some teachers who were really supportive. And when I went to visit architecture schools, it just sort of occurred to me, like I didn't know anyone who did it. So I just started researching schools and I, I was like, architecture school, this sounds like everything I've ever wanted out of school. So when I started to visit them after, I guess, you know, junior year, sophomore year, whenever you visit colleges, I would walk into these architecture studios, you know, these universities. And I was like, I'm home. Like, this is literally what I was doing when I was five years old, except you can get a degree in it and you make real buildings eventually. (laughs) It was just, it just felt so right. And I wanted to go to UVA for many reasons, but one of them is my other degrees in history. And I really wanted to have a really robust, also additional education, not just strictly architecture. Yeah. So after undergrad, I understand you took a job as a general laborer and I had Eric Weatherholtz on the show a while back. And I think he did a, one of his newsletters was like his first day on the job as like, you know, in construction. And I kind of wanted to hear some stories about your days as a general laborer right out of college doing really hard work. But I would imagine like you learned a ton in that first job. So I just kind of wanted to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, for sure. So my whole final year of undergrad, I actually did a project with a group of students where we designed and then built a house. So we, it was a modular house. We actually built it in pieces and trucked it to the site and craned it into place, worked with a local uh, nonprofit developer to do that. That was my first exposure to like, what is a pro forma and why are we doing market rate affordable housing? That was my fourth year of undergrad. And then that whole summer we built it. And I was like, this is amazing. Like I'm building the thing I drew with this team of students and, you know, fellow students. And wow. So it's really hard to actually, you draw something, you think it's going to work. And then you go out there and you build it. (laughs) Turns out it's nothing like what you thought it was. And our instructors and our mentors, we had a general contractor was our mentor as well, helping us through this and just let us have enough rope that we could actually kind of mess up, but not too much rope that obviously we would mess up enough that it would be dangerous or something like that. So after that experience, that was winding down in um, October, I guess, after I graduated and I got a job. uh, Yeah, it was basically as a laborer. So it was part laborer, part office. And the office part was basically or shop more like they were a design build company and they had a shop. And so I would spend a lot of time like vacuuming out saws and stuff. But yeah, I mean, my first day on the job, literal first day, the construction company that I was working for was renovating an architecture office. And my job was to carry rubble from the basement where we were jackhammering out the slab to put in these footers for these steel posts. And I had to carry the rubble in these buckets from the basement through the architecture office, like past people who I had gone to school with who were like dutifully doing what you're supposed to do after architecture school, which is learning how to be an architect. And I was like sweaty and gross and pretty disillusioned on day one, very hungry. I did not pack enough lunch. And that was my first day. So after that, 
you know, lots of other stories about that as well. Similar type adventures. You know, I was the smallest person on the crew. I was always the smallest one on the job site. I was the only woman on the job site most of the time. And turns out that being the smallest one on the crew, you'd think means you get excused from heavy work because they're like, well, she can't do that. Well, that's not true. You just have to find out ways to do it in a smarter way. So (laughs) I was expected to do everything. And then also when you're the small one, you get like shoved in holes or like, oh, she's light enough. She can walk up there and get that without breaking that. And I'm like, okay. So, you know, I was an asset. Yeah. You're the one that goes into the cross spaces and like all the areas that nobody wants to go. Oh, yes. I got shoved everywhere. Yeah. And uh, rubble is not light. I just got done with a renovation of like a home that's got a ton of kind of the same thing, just a ton of rubble that needed to go out to a dumpster. And it is like heavy, heavy stuff. Yeah, it was rough. Yeah. Yeah. So how long did that last? And then what was your next step? And I wanted to hear too, like as you're working in this architectural firm that you guys are working on, and you're looking at these architects, at that point, were you like, that's where I want to be? Or did you still feel like I want to be in the field? I want to learn more about actual construction processes and methods and understanding construction deeper? Yeah, I definitely, I looked at the architects in there and I said, I don't want to do that. That looks miserable. I don't want to be sitting at that computer just staring at a screen all the time. So what I ended up doing, so I worked for that initial company for, I don't know, six or eight months or so, and then got an offer from another general contractor that I'd been doing work for on the side. And he hired me to work in the office. And basically, you know, it was 2005, 2006, the economy was going completely crazy. There was so much work. And he basically offered me a job that was like assistant to the assistant, assistant copy person. And I was like, sure. So because I wanted to work at a bigger construction company than just the one that was like four people. And while I really liked my time in the field, I wanted to know about how construction worked from a more experienced general contractor than the guys I was working for who were great. So I transitioned to this other company and got a huge raise I was making more money than I ever, like, I was like $40,000 a year. Like this blowing my mind. This is so much money. This is amazing. And I started as the assistant to the assistant assistant, did all kinds of drudge work. They didn't give me a desk. They didn't give me a computer. They didn't give me anything. It was like hazing. So for four months, I just would show up and I was like, what am I supposed to do? And they were too busy to tell me anything. So I would just have to like figure out who needed help and how not to piss them off when I was being like, hi, can I help with something? So there was a lot of uh, a lot of that. But sometimes they would give me these stacks of things that I would just have to copy on the copy machine. And I was like, oh, this is so demeaning. Then I realized that I should just read what I'm copying. And I did. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is like 20 different electrical quotes. I bet this would be useful for me to understand and like take back to my desk, which I had finally fished one out of the back room and like put it in the hallway so I could have somewhere to sit. And then I would like analyze it myself. I was like, they're not going to give me anything to do. So then I organized the back room. I organized the supply closets. And I just started by being at the supply closet. It was right outside the controller's office. So I heard every conversation for the two hours that I was like, I just tried to be really strategic. Yeah, no, that it reminds me of um, Sean Sweeney's story a little bit. You know, he took a job as a receptionist in San Francisco and, you know, just same thing, like making copies and just tried to learn as much as he could in the environment that he was in. It sounds like you did something similar, just like tried to soak it all in. 
I did. Yeah. And then at one point, the president of the company, who was a really wonderful mentor to me and taught me so much about construction and how to do it. He one day leaned out of his office. He goes, Marilyn, come down here. I was like, okay. So I went to his office and he's like, all right, we're giving you a job. And I was like, what? Like yesterday I was organizing post-it notes. (laughs) He's like, we're giving you a job. We want you to project manage it. So first you're going to have to estimate it because we always train everyone as an estimator first. So you're going to get a crash course in estimating which I'd already sort of been doing. I'd been helping with estimates. So, but he said, at this company, you estimate your own job, you own it. And if you don't have a good estimate and you don't make the company money, you're in trouble. I was like, okay, what? Wow. <laughs> and what kind of jobs were you guys working on? Was it multifamily stuff or what, what were you guys doing? It was all kinds of stuff. So I got assigned a single family house, which I think was a good idea to start me off with that. We had a pretty robust arm doing a lot of medical and commercial buildings and fit out. We did multifamily, we did high-end custom residential, and we did sort of oddball commercial and industrial. And the company had a development arm. So there was also development projects. And I got to be brought into a lot of those to sort of my boss caught it being eyes and ears, which at first I was like, what? You want me to take notes? Then I realized that the person taking notes is the one who literally learns everything. So I'd go to all these meetings and it was a pretty wide array of stuff I got exposed to and got to participate in. So how did that first project as a project manager on that single family house go? I mean, what were some... Antonia had a similar experience, like where she was just thrown out into the field as a PM. And it was a very similar story again. And like, what were some of the, I guess, takeaways, but also like mistakes that like, you know, looking back on things that were like, wow, that was a big, you know, big learning that I got from doing that single family home. Yeah. I mean, I think, first of all, my boss assured me, he's like, we're giving you a very experienced superintendent. So he's going to help train you in how to do this. And I was like, great, that's a good idea. I'm 22. What do I know about anything? So three weeks into the actual construction, that superintendent was pulled off to do another job. And I got someone who was not experienced and not enthusiastic about having me as the project manager. So that was a challenge. The next thing that happened in this sort of situation was that because I was the lowest one in seniority, I did not get to pick my crews. So I got the dregs. So whoever was left over after every other project manager got like the star framers and the good guys, I got who was left. And in those days, anyone who had a pulse could be hired at a construction company. So my crew was, it was pretty rough. So I caught them cheating on their timesheets. So I figured it out, figured out it was happening. And I was like, well, what am I going to do? So I went in and talked to my boss. I was like, what am I going to do? I was like, these guys are cheating on their timesheets. He's like, how do you know? I told him. He's like, sounds about right. I said, what am I going to do? He's like, what are you going to do? He turned it right back around him. He's like, well, what are you going to do? He's like, sounds like it's a you problem. And that was pretty intense. So I had to go out and confront these guys. And, you know, when you're 23 and you're a woman on a job site and... That's tough. That's tough for anybody to have that kind of confrontational conversation. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was also a few years ago. It's a different era, different place. And I had to handle it. And my boss was like, you're going to handle this and you're going to learn about it. And someday you'll talk about it on podcast. So what did you do? Did you end up firing them or how did you, how did you handle it? I couldn't fire them because there wasn't anyone else. So I was like, well, guys, we're stuck with each other. Like, so I told them they were cheating and that was not cool. And, you know, like, what's their problem? What's the deal? Like, this is unacceptable. Like, in what world is it okay to steal from your employer, which is ultimately stealing from the person whose house you're building? Like, for this guy, this couple and their kids, like, get out of here with that. So I just, I was pretty tough, I guess. And um, 
they stopped doing it. So I guess it worked. Were these guys general laborers or were they, who were they? Were they, I'm just curious. They were laborers and carpenters and yeah. So, I mean, by cheating on the, I mean, you know, you go out to the job site and you're like, all right, guys, like there's four pieces of plywood installed today. Like, ain't no way five of you for eight hours did that. Like, that's insane. So that also taught me a lot about how to know what is an acceptable amount of work in a day, which is an incredibly valuable thing to have under my belt. Because ultimately it's up to me to justify it, you know, whether it's a weather delay or they didn't have the right materials and it's my fault or they used all the wrong stuff because I didn't, you know, ultimately the buck stops with me, which is what my boss I think was trying to teach me. So at what stage did you start rethinking going back to getting your master's in architect school and talk to me about that transition? Because it sounded like maybe early on you were like, "Ah, I don't know if that's the route I want to take. What made you change your mind to go back to school and get a master's degree? Well, a couple of things. One, so I worked at that company for, I guess, three or four years or whatever. And basically the recession happened. So 2008, 2009 hits and there was just not the same amount of work. Layoffs started to happen. I knew I wanted to go back to architecture school. It's not that I didn't want to be an architect. I just didn't want to be sitting at a computer picking up red lines day in and day out on some giant building with a team of 50. Like I just, I didn't want that. I wanted to be much more in the driver's seat. I wanted to be much more in the nitty gritty of the project. So I always knew I wanted to be an architect. So at that point I said, all right, well, this seems like a good time to go to grad school. So I applied and ended up choosing to stay at Virginia. So this whole time I I was in Charlottesville, Virginia and went back to UVA for my master's. One of the best financial decisions I've ever made in my entire life, frankly. Is going back to school? What's the decision? Is choosing to go back to UVA in-state tuition. My tuition was like five grand a year. So I graduated with no debt. And the other front runner was I had applied to Harvard and didn't get in. And I actually am quite grateful for that because it would have been three years. I would have been $175,000 in debt. You know, it would have, it really set myself up very, very powerfully for the rest of my, you know, starting my business, investing in real estate, not being saddled with that kind of debt made a huge difference. Yeah, no, it's huge. It's huge. And didn't you actually go back to Harvard and you lectured there? Yes. So the first time I actually set foot in there was because I was an invited lecturer, which was pretty awesome. That's really cool. I want to talk a little bit about architect school and how long it took, what goes into it. We've got a lot of kind of, you know, beginning and intermediate investors or people just learning about real estate. Talk to us a little bit about that process and what it was like for you, just the experience of it. Yeah. So architecture school, becoming an architect is a quite a long process. Um, and it consists of three parts. You have to have a professional degree in architecture. So either a B-ARC, which is a special five-year program, or an M-ARC, which is a master's of architecture. If you go that route, it takes six to seven years to get all that education. Then you also need to intern for a certain amount of time. I don't think they call it interning anymore, but you have to do like 5,000 hours in 18 different areas of experience that you have to work directly for a licensed architect to get those 5,000 hours. In my day, they had to be after you were out of your master's program. And then on top of that, you have to take exams. And at the time I took it, it was seven exams. It's now six. It's the same material. They just condensed it. And when I took it, it was seven exams. Each exam is like three to four hours, closed book. You know, it was on engineering, structures, running a practice, ethics, 
all kinds of stuff. And then if you failed a test, you had to wait six months to take it again. And you had five years to get all of them done. So that whole process, most people aren't, it's a little bit faster now. They have some ways that you can go through it a little bit faster, but most people have no idea that it takes that long to get licensed. It took me, I was 28, I think, or 29 when I was licensed and I had been in the industry the entire time. So it takes a long time. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. Super intense. It's like medical school, you know, for, you know, it really is like the amount of time and energy and effort that goes into it. It's intense. Do you find in like your experience that there's a lot of people that think they want to be architects that put in the time? You know, it's you hear the stories about a doctor that ends up like putting the time in, in medical school and they finally get there and they're like, this is not for me at all. Do you find that much kind of attrition like over the years with people that you maybe went to school with, how many of them like stick around and end up becoming practicing architects and stay in the industry? There's actually a lot of interesting statistics about this. I mean, for undergrad programs, it's very low because an undergrad degree in architecture is not a professional degree. Mine was a BS, which meant that it was a more technical degree. But with that, you can go do all sorts of other really interesting things. You can go into engineering, you go into industrial design, you could go into real estate or construction or whatever. 
So a lot of people might be in like sort of allied industries, but they're not practicing architects. Another close route is a lot of people practice as designers, but not as architects. They don't go through that whole thing. So the all the licensure stuff. So there are plenty of people and firms are filled with people who are not licensed, but have still had significant training and have a ton of experience. And then I would say that in grad school, for the most part, if you're in grad school to go for your professional degree in architecture, chances are you do know that that is what you want to do because you hopefully work somewhere or have some experience. It's not the easiest degree in the world. So you don't want to go get it if just for like the heck of it. So, but at that same rate, the gap between people who go through those different stages and who is licensed is pretty large. And in fact, there's a huge gap. It's like 18 to 22% of practicing architects are women. So the attrition rate for women is way higher because all of this intense studying and all of this intense work and these exams and your internship hours are all taking place like in your mid 20s to mid 30s where women are potentially starting families and it's just a lot harder. So there's still a huge gap. So architecture school has been 50-50 men and women for a pretty long time. It was when I was in school, but the number of women architects is still right around 20%. Yeah, I think Antonia made the same point, something similar to that. It's hard. Yeah. Yeah. So what happened next after you finished your master's degree, you've got the licenses. Did you end up in Boston at that point? I did. Yeah. So turns out that if you go to a two-year master's program, sometimes recessions last longer than two years. So I graduated into the recession. So at my master's thesis defense, one of the people on my defense panel is an architect with a firm in Boston, and he offered me a job. And I had another opportunity in New Orleans as well. So I was trying to decide between New Orleans and Boston. Both of them were sort of like part-time-ish jobs. They weren't like real jobs. So I had to decide which city to move to for like a half a job. That's hard to do. I mean, I graduated without debt, but I didn't have any money. So I sold my car. I chose Boston and started working at Util, which at the time was like 17 or 18 people. Actually, I didn't even start there. I had to I had to wait a few months. I had to just be in Boston so that when he was like, I'm ready for you, I could go there. So I started teaching to help pay the bills a little bit at that time. But then, yeah, that's where I got all my multifamily experience was there because they're just multifamily powerhouses at that firm. So that lasted from what, 2000? When did you start? 2010. 2010. So yeah, so that's 2010. Things were a little bit on the upswing at that point. How long were you at in Boston at that firm? And then did you know that you wanted to start your own firm at some point? Like, did you have those entrepreneurial inklings of wanting to do your own shop at some point? So I stayed there for a couple of years. And that's also when I did my... So I'd won a fellowship to travel around the world researching vernacular residential architecture. So I was doing these like trips in between trying to work and keep my job, which was a whole other story. Which I want to get into the whole traveling. Can you explain what vernacular architecture is? Because I think there's a lot of people that may not know what that means. Architecture not done by architects, aka 98% of the buildings in the world. (laughs) So let's jump into that. I want to go there. So you got a $50,000 grant, I think, to travel the world studying vernacular architecture. Talk to us about that. You did a longitudinal line, it sounded like, of travel, which absolutely sounds fascinating to me. 
share with us some of like, you know, where you started, you know, like I just, um, I love to travel. So I want to hear some of the adventures you had. I had a few adventures, let's just say. So yeah, so I did a line of longitude. I had studied one of my grad school summers in Jamaica. I did a field school where I was training on historic masonry and carpentry techniques from Jamaican carpenters and masons. And I spent the summer doing that and documenting 18th century buildings in this small town in Jamaica. So that was fascinating. I learned a ton. You know, a bunch of us were in this program, be sitting on the beach after work. And one day I was like, the idea kind of came to me of like, I thought I wanted to apply for this fellowship. And I thought I had discovered that my hometown and this place were on the same line of longitude. And I was like, that's interesting. Like they're tied together by this sort of arbitrary geographical thing that we made up. But I wonder what else is on that line. That, well, that was my thought on the beach. Like what else is on that line? So I went back and like got out a map, I guess. And there wasn't internet. So I got out a map somewhere and like trace it around. And that became the basis of the trip. So I was in Peru and on the other side. So I kind of like wiggled off my line because I was traveling with some folks. And so they had research to do in other places. So I got to go to other places as well. But I was in Beijing. I was in Mongolia, Korea, Singapore, Malaysia, Vietnam, and Australia. That's awesome. And how long was the trip? Well, I broke it into different chunks. Oh, I also went to Switzerland as well, which is not on the line of longitude, but I was looking at the origin of the homes in my hometown. All the immigrants came from Switzerland. So I went to that exact place in Switzerland where they were from. And I was looking at like the architecture that they built then and then the architecture that they built in my hometown to kind of compare and contrast. So the whole entire, I had to break it up into chunks because I was teaching and working and I, you know, $50,000 is a lot of money, but I didn't want to spend it on like rent. I wanted to spend it on traveling. <laughs> so the whole thing was probably about five or six months of travel broken into chunks. My biggest chunk was about four months and the Asia trip was all one trip. That's incredible. It had to be life-changing. I've got to imagine it had to have been hard to come back to Boston, I would imagine. Like there had to be some reverse culture shock, like coming back after like studying, because you were in Mongolia, I know, studying Yurts or you pronounce them gur? How do you pronounce them gur? Gur, that's a Mongolian word. Yeah, gur. Okay. So that had to be a mind, you know, kind of mess with your mind a little bit to see how all these different people live and have for thousands of years. Talk to us a little bit about the gur like that. I thought it was interesting what you said on Yona's interview, just about how these structures have been around forever. Yeah. Well, you know, I think there's a tendency and I felt this way at times in my education, certainly feel it just as an American in the world that Western ideas are like the first time anyone has thought about standardizing construction is a Western idea in the 20th century. That is a thousand percent not true. Or the best masonry examples are like from the UK, from whatever. I mean, there's gorgeous stuff there, but there's many people around the world have amazing construction techniques and have wrestled with the exact things that sort of when you go to school and learn about like a lot of Western, when it's very Western centric, then you, you sort of think that no one else is doing this or no one else has thought of this. And turns out everyone has because everyone wants the same things out of a house. Turns out they all want to be, you know, dry from the rain or warm from the cold or, you know, cool from the heat or whatever. Like these are the things that everybody wants out of a house. So seeing how people solve those problems in ways like in Mongolia, where they're using a gur, which is basically the same, you know, if Genghis Khan showed up, he'd be like, yep, looks like a gur. Like, I know what this is. And they're all standardized parts. 
and it works. It works in the climate. It works for lifestyle. And, you know, they're good to go. Then also seeing how some of these forms have translated over history. So the shop house form, which is all over Southeast Asia. It's all over the world, frankly, but like this particular form I was looking at, um, the Southeast Asian version. So shops on the first floor, house up above, like pretty common all over the world. But the sort of the way it's laid out is there's this unique situation. So that gets translated into modern cities. That was an urban architectural type in the 17th century in Vietnam or in Malaysia or wherever, wherever I was, those types are translated to modern types, modern shop houses, which are fascinatingly impacted by early zoning laws, which they wouldn't have called them zoning, but it was a combination of sort of zoning and tax law that created the lot shape that created this building type. So when you're thinking about how zoning impacts our cities or how governmental policy in the form of real estate tax impacts our built environment, Turns out these are things that people have been doing and thinking about for hundreds or even thousands of years. And sort of seeing all how people have solved that or engaged with that in different places just makes my tool belt that much more robust and also just sort of takes my focus away from having everything be so Western-centric. Is it something that you can apply then coming back here, like some of the things and the learnings that you took away from that trip? Is it tough to apply some of that stuff or are you able to do it? I absolutely am able to do it, but there's an important distinction here. It's not about copying something. It's not about seeing a form and saying, wow, that's a really cool looking window. I'm going to paste that on a stick frame house in like suburbia. Like, What it is, it's about understanding how people operate their houses or how people interact with the urban environment. Most of the places I was looking at were urban and finding new prototypes for urban living or residential living or whatever. You have to understand that these types are deeply culturally connected. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about this that you you sort of you're like, well, I like the look of this. So now I'm going to take it and apply it like a paint bucket tool onto a building over here. And then people wonder why it doesn't work. Well, it's because you're not actually taking the function of it. You're just taking the look of it. You're not really understanding how it works, either technically or culturally. And so I think it's a couple of things. It's construction technique for sure. I mean, I've seen so many things that you know, I was just designing a porch recently for a project and I was like, oh, right, like there's this joinery technique that I saw in whatever, whatever, like what if we just used a modified version of that? That would solve this problem. So like sometimes that does happen, but mostly it's about the thinking behind it. That's most valuable. So I wanted to jump back to you're in Boston, you're at this firm, you've done this huge, amazing trip. Talk to us about getting Runcible Studios started. Explain how the name came about and just talk a little bit about making that jump from I guess like a W-2 job to starting your own venture, which is a risky, unnerving process for most people. Yeah. So I had a little bit of a stopover in between. So I had about a year and a half after I'd left UTL that I was a design school administrator. So I was working at the Boston Architectural College in their practice department, directing a whole series of sections of the curriculum and also working on pairing groups of students with local nonprofits to do design build projects. So we did a ton of them. It was a really cool experience. But I knew within a few weeks of starting the job that this wasn't for me. Why is that? Explain that to me. Well, I'm not political enough to be a higher ed administrator. (laughs) I can play one on TV, but I just can't. I'm like a builder. I'm a doer. Like these meetings where everyone's talking for like three hours and then everyone's like, wow, we got a lot of work done. I'm like, we literally just sat there and talked. 
So I just, I missed being around people, you know, architects, contractors, developers, people who, who are building things, who are like making stuff. So I love teaching. I love curriculum building. I love a ton of the stuff I did, but I it was pretty clear it wasn't going to be the right thing. So combine that with like, a, you know, I don't want to go back and work for a firm. I sort of chafed under not having enough like freedom to choose the projects I wanted to do or, or how I would do it. Also, salaries are just terrible. So I was like, I'm not even being paid a living wage. In academia? In architecture. No, academia was way better. So I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I have three more exams to pass. You know what? I'm just going to quit my job and academia. I'm going to keep all my teaching. So I negotiated keeping all my teaching. So I got paid for doing my courses. And then I had a, you know, I quit on my last day was November 1st, 2013 was the last day I had a W2, but I didn't have a plan. No plan. I quit and I said, well, I get three weeks paid vacation. So, you know, that'll tie me over. It's good. Then it's going to be Christmas. Like, I don't know. I'll just pass my exams and then I'll, I'll like figure it out. Like I, I didn't, I did not have a plan. So people heard that I was kind of a free agent and somebody said, Hey, like, can you help on this project? Like just a few weeks of work, like we'll just pay you whatever. I was like, sure. So word got around and I was doing some work for people here and there on the side, passed all my exams, became an official architect. And then in April, the following year in 2014, I was like, you know what? I think I just accidentally started a business. Like, I, I think, I think that's what just happened. So I should probably get like a name. I should probably do an LLC. I should probably get some insurance. So I, I did all of that and filed my LLC paperwork on April 15th. So it's very easy for me. My business birthday is also tax day. So, and I celebrate my business birthday every year on April 15th. But yeah, I had that about six months of like, so I did not do it in a traditional way. I didn't do it in like the super planned out, like, well, first I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do that. And here's my strategic plan. It was very organic. And then I worked on my own. Once I decided to make a go of it, then I was like, all right, we're doing this. I got a seat at a co-working space for $300 a month, which felt like the most money I had, like I didn't have any money. I got an additional roommate. I was like piling it in, like every dime I could save, you know, how could I execute? So the name Runcible comes from the poem, The Owl and the Pussycat by Edward Lear. And it describes a runcible spoon, which he doesn't really define, but most people like a spork. They think it's a spork. With a sharp edge, right? It's kind of like, Everything all together, right? Yeah, I have one right here. So it's like a spoon and a fork. So, you know, people say later, I mean, it was a nonsense word, but basically using context clues, you can say that it's a, a word that describes an object that's both beautiful and utilitarian. So I was like, that's cool. That's a cool name. And it was the first book I ever read. Oh, really? It was your very first book? That's super impactful. Yeah. So I also called it Studios with an S. So the company's called Runcible Studios. Yeah with an S on the end. And that was because I already knew that I was going to be not only the Runcible Spoon, but the Swiss Army Knife. I wanted to be able to be nimble. And basically, Runcible Studios is a giant experiment and me finding out how to make money at doing things that I love, that I think are important, that are interesting, that fuel my curiosity, that are good for the community and all that good stuff. So I've done a lot of things under the Runcible Studios umbrella that are like not traditional architecture. <laughs> Can you talk about some of those? Because I'm curious about, I was checking out your website, which is really well done, by the way. I think you've spent a lot of time on it. But talk to us a little bit about some of the unique projects that you've done that maybe be outside like the general scope of what most architects would do. 
Well, you know, two of the biggest ones happened right around the pandemic when everyone was getting creative about how to keep things going. One of them was I opened up a store. So it's much smaller now because I sold a bunch of stuff and I didn't restart it. But I have a little store and I designed all this stuff and, you know, someone just placed an order yesterday. Like it's still going. It's just, you know, it's kind of there in the background. So I started a store. My mom owned a store for many years. So I was raised in the retail environment. and I love retail. I love it so much. So I loved like every part of it, like figuring out how to set up the store, figuring out how the logistics work. How do I do shipping? How do I keep track of stock? Like it was really fun. So I did that under Runcible's umbrella. And as part of that, I also during the pandemic opened up a mask factory. So in the early days in Boston, it was the outbreak happened early there. So all of the hospital systems, no one had enough masks. So in like week two of the pandemic, I was making masks and like sending them places. So I imagine like nicely designed masks, right? Not just generic blue ones. Yeah. Yes. I made, I found a fabric store that would deliver because everywhere was closed. And so they would deliver and leave it on my front porch. And then I would make masks and I would give them away. And in those days, you know, nobody had anything. So my friends would text me and I would be like, yep, they're going to be on the front porch. I'll put your name on a sticky note. You can get it. I designed the packaging. I designed, I came up with like a couple different versions, like these cool ones that you could put a filter in and all this kind of stuff. And, and then I sold them on the website and that funded the ones that I was making for healthcare workers in those early days when nobody knew what was going on. And I made them for organizations. A developer actually hired me to make a whole bunch of matching ones for their whole team with their little logo on it. So I did that. So I would work all day trying to save my business during a pandemic. And I was pulling 16 hour days working in the business and then sewing masks. I love it. I love the hustle. The entrepreneurial spirit is great. Now, at that point, were you in Boston or were you back in Pennsylvania? Because you are kind of in between both places, from my understanding. Yeah, I'm between both places. The between both places started as a result of the pandemic. So my, all my family's in Pennsylvania. And after a year of not seeing all of them or seven months or whatever, I was like, this is not it. This is not what I want. The plan was always to move back to Pennsylvania. So what I did was I was going to open up a branch in Philly. So I got an apartment in Philly and I started networking and I started, you know, getting my ducks in a row and I'd have a Boston office and a Philly office. You know, it was pretty, pretty straightforward to adding a city, whatever. And that was going okay. But then very soon after that, I got the opportunity to renovate our family farm house or the house on our family farm, which there's like three houses. This is the oldest one that I renovated. And that opportunity came up and I was like, well, we're close to Philly, but not that close. So maybe I will not do the Philly thing and do Boston and Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which is where now my other satellite location is. So it's a moving situation and trying to figure out like Boston and Philly, you can do the same thing in both places. There's subtleties and differences and the cities are different and whatever. Lancaster and Boston are really different. So I'm, I'm navigating that. So share with us a little bit more about the family farmhouse. Your family were Mennonites from Switzerland. Is that right? That's right. Yep. Talk to us. They came to Pennsylvania and settled in 17, you tell the story, 17 or early 1700s. Yeah, early 1711, they came over. So they were on the run in Europe for, I don't know, 100 years or so. 
being kicked out from various places because no one liked the Mennonites. And yeah, so they arrived here uh, in 1711 and built the house that I'm in, uh, that I renovated in 1730. So, and they were farmers. My nephew is the 10th generation to be born and raised here. That's amazing. That's so cool. And so you've renovated this farmhouse. It has been in the family for generations, right? I mean, that's incredible to me. I mean, talk to us about the process. When was it last renovated? Like, what was, what's the experience been like? Cause it's, that's pretty wild. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. So the house was built in 1730, renovated extensively in 1810, again in 1910 ish, and again in 1950, and then pretty much not after that. So it was really rough. It had been abandoned for a while. There were bats in the attic. There were animals everywhere, groundhogs in the basement. So when was the last time somebody had lived in the farmhouse? Uh, Like 2012, I think. Okay. So it's been a while. Yeah. And my parents had done a bunch of really important work to it. They had repointed the whole exterior and done a bunch of work on the windows. So that was huge. And it's a stone structure, right? It's solid stone. Yeah. So 22 inch thick stone walls. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a little castle. <laughs> yeah. Really cool. Yeah. So then I, when I showed up, it was pretty much a blank slate. Which had to be fun for you as an architect, like coming in with like carte blanche. Yeah. It was really fun. It was the toughest blank slate though that I've ever encountered because it's a blank slate from the standpoint that, yeah, I need to run all new electrical and plumbing and HAC and all the systems. But it's a solid house. Like even the walls inside are solid. They're solid wood. That's how they built walls back in those days. They didn't use studs. They just used solid wall, like planks. So how do you run electrical when all the walls are solid? How do you run HVAC when there's literally logs holding the house up? So it was a phenomenal challenge and one I embraced wholeheartedly. I love that kind of stuff. So the fun is now when I tell people, you know, cause I've got heat and air conditioning, I've got ducks everywhere. I'm like, find me a duct, tell me where they are. They're really hidden. So they're not exposed at all, huh? They're not exposed. They're definitely, if you, you can definitely see where they are, if you can read a building, but I got pretty creative about how they're in here. So I worked with a mechanical engineer to size the ducts really carefully. I have a fresh air system and an ERV in here. So I had to run all those ducts as well. And then I also, I built a model of the house and mapped out every single duct, every single plumbing line, everything. So that when I was working with the contractor and with the subcontractors, I was like, we are not cutting through anything. We are not destroying these walls. And they were all game, right? Like if they're on this project, they're going to be into it, you know? So, so they were into it. But there's a lot of, not many architects do that. We do it for actually all of our projects. We design all the duct work and it makes a huge difference because what the subs will push you into doing is nowhere near as sharp and clean as what you can do if you really, if you really dial it in. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. 
While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. You had a post on Twitter, a thread all about HVAC systems, which was like, maybe it was in your newsletter, I can't remember, but super in-depth and like a standalone lesson on HVAC systems. Yeah, I'm definitely an HVAC nerd. I think I've been looking into different HVAC certifications and things because I would love to. I'm not going to become a mechanical engineer. I don't have six more years of education that I want to get, but I'd love to. I'm like a closet mechanical engineer. (laughs) So is this something with the farmhouse? Is it completed or are you still work? Is it like a work in progress? So definitely not complete. I mean, it's eminently livable. The bathrooms are all like, it's for all intents and purposes. And you can see it on my website. It's, you know, it's complete, but I always will be a work in progress as always things. My roof just failed. So I'm getting that repaired, like a new roof. So, you know, and that's part of the challenge of running the business is that I don't have the same sort of cash situation that a lot of people might have. Like this house is not an investment. Right. So you're not going to Airbnb it or anything like that, like the other structure? No, and I'm not going to sell it. So there's no, I mean, did I add a metric ton of value here? Yes, but it's not value that I can realize. Yeah. It's not going to leave the family, right? You're not going to... No, it's kind of a, and, and to have that as a financial responsibility, the farm and all the buildings and all that kind of stuff. I mean, there's family, it's not just me, but it's still a real responsibility. And I, it impacts how I think about how I run my business and how I invest in other things. Which I want to get into your investments. You know, there's a mostly real estate investors, you know, for our podcast. Talk to us a little bit about 
some of your early investments that you've done. I know on your pinned uh, Twitter thread, it said it looked like you were looking for your next you know, real estate investment project. Talk to us a little bit. Let's start with the first one that you did and just what your thought process is in terms of what you're interested in pursuing you know, going forward. Yeah. So my first one was a condo in Charlottesville, Virginia, when I was living down there, when I was contracting and all that kind of stuff. And I bought in, you know, what, 2006? Great. Great time to buy a condo. That's great. And, you know, I think interest only seven and a half percent, you know, whatever. <laughs> like, what did I know? I didn't know anything. So yeah, seemed like a good idea. Yeah. This is what everyone is doing, right? Like, this is what you're supposed to do. So like, I'll just refinance later, like no biggie. So I had that. And then by the time I was ready to move to Boston, I couldn't sell it. You know, it was recession, no one was going to buy it for what I paid for it. So I was like, well, I guess I'll just rent it out to my friends who are finishing out grad school. Fine. So I did that. Then eventually ran out of people I knew to rent to. So I was like, well, I guess I have to figure out how to rent to people I don't know. And by the way, I'm in Boston still, so I have to figure that out. And maintenance stuff comes up. But luckily, I was a contractor, so I know tons of people who can fix stuff for me in town. So I cobbled it together. And pretty soon, I was like running an out-of-state property as a landlord in a condo with a homeowners association that I had to like keep happy and all that. So I was like, I can do this. Like, this is fine. So I said, but you know what? I really want to own a place in Boston. The problem is that I was saving up my nickels and dimes, but there was no way I was ever going to be able to buy anything that costs. I just didn't have the money. So I would have had to sell the place, which I still couldn't sell yet. So I said, okay, well, where could I buy something with my pile of nickels and dimes? Well, my hometown. So I bought a two-family in Lancaster, sight unseen, which now I can do that. What did you do? Like a Zoom call or what? How did you even find out about the property? A Zoom call. Yeah. So the realtor that I work with, he's been a family friend for a really long time. So I trust him. And I, at this point, he knows I'm going to look at something later with him today, actually. So he knew what I was looking for and he knew the neighborhood. He's like, this is a great neighborhood. This is before I knew anything about any of that stuff. But I was like, yeah, it is a good neighborhood. Like, so, but I learned a few things. I have now a list as a good investor should, of things that like, if the property doesn't have these things, I'm probably going to pass. Just say it was a duplex? Yeah, it's a two family. So it was a single family that was converted. Actually, it was a old hair salon with an apartment above that someone made the hair salon into an apartment. So it's like kind of, it's definitely a weirdo building. Definitely. So what are some of the top two or three things you would avoid in the future? One of them is do not like I need to have access to the utilities without going through a tenant space. So I learned that the hard way because that building doesn't have that. And I have to check with the tenant and the tenant gets annoyed and I don't want to annoy tenants, right? Like I don't want that in my house, people trucking through all the time. So, and then other things like, you know, just knowing that no matter what state the furnace is in, no matter what, no matter if it's brand new or 30 years old, I will have to replace it. Like it will fail. I will have to deal with it. I don't know whether I just have like bad furnace luck or what, but like I just, so now I just factor that in. I'm like, okay. I mean, I'm being a little bit silly, but not, you know? And then some other things that are a big pain is that this property has nowhere for the trash cans to sit. And the city has certain regulations about where trash cans can and can't be. And I basically can't follow those regulations because of the way the building is laid out. And so I'm constantly having to deal with all of that, like annoyance where the city is like, you need to do this. And I'm like, I literally can't. And then I'm like, I can't ask my tenants to keep the 
rolly trash cans like in their house. So stuff like that is like little stuff, but it's that stuff that like every two or three months, there's like a little thing I have to deal with because the trash is on the street, you know? So that's another one. Yeah. Just little festering problems that you just don't want to deal with. So what's next? What are your, you said you're going to go look at a place today. What's kind of next on your agenda? Yeah. So I did eventually sell my condo, learned about 1031s. So real quick, kind of explain a a quick, for people that don't know what a 1031 is. So a 1031, which I learned about on the fly, is when you sell a property and you have to give the money to someone else, you can't touch it, put it in an escrow account, lawyer or somebody holds it, and then you don't get taxed on it. You then take that money and buy a like property. So you can't sell your condo and then buy, you know, a vacation home or whatever. Those are the rules. So you did the 1031 on the condo or? On the condo. Yeah. Okay. So you've got this money in escrow. Is that right? That is now ready to be, you've got what, 180 days to buy something. No. So I, that was years ago. So I already bought two properties with that. So I 1031 that into another two family and a single family, which I renovated and sold. And now the coffers have built back up. So that was right. That was right at the beginning of COVID. Like I sold that single family. I was like, oh, I better sell this. I was thinking of selling it. I should do this now before things get crazy in COVID. So of course I missed the biggest run up in like the history of. Yeah. That timing is hard to. Yeah. I just, I like, I don't, Zillow still sends me those little updates. Like this is your property. And I'm like, I don't want to know. Like, great. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. That's a nice reminder. So yeah. So I have, you know, was able to carve out some savings. But you still did well, right? Just not as well as you could have. Yeah. I did fine. I did just fine. And the amount of learning that I had on it was, you know, it's like getting paid to learn if you do it right. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That's how I view it. And so you were your own GC, I presume, right? You managed the whole project. I did manage the whole project, but it was like, I guess it was right before COVID. And I sort of managed it with a team. So I was still in Boston. So I was managing this from afar. I bought that sight unseen, ran the entire job sight unseen. People shouldn't do that. No, that's rough. They should not do that. So I did it because my cousin's a general contractor and he was on the job. I can trust him. It was a straightforward project, more or less. And I have a lot of experience. So I knew the decisions I needed to make. And if someone's like, we just opened up this wall and found X, Y, and Z. I'm like, that's my day job. So I'm like, do A, B, and C. I'm fine. But if you're not seasoned, well, you shouldn't do it anyway. But if you're not seasoned, you really shouldn't do it. So you're not going to do that again? Something out of state and manage it? No. I mean, now that I'm more focused in Lancaster, I can check on my properties more often. I can, you know, I can go see stuff. Highly recommend going to see things in person that you're planning to buy. Highly recommend that. Yeah, I don't get the whole out of state. You know, it's like a thing, but I don't get it. Like, I want to see my what I own. Yeah, I do too. And I think it's responsible, you know, like when things go wrong, you know, and I self manage my properties, which I know is like a whole other topic that people have strong opinions on in both directions. But I self manage. No one does it as well as I do, and nobody will. I tried management, it didn't work at all. I had angry tenants and a whole bunch of mess and whatever. Not saying I won't do it in the future, but probably that'll be an arm of Rentable Studios, right? Property management. Yeah, who knows, right? You're nimble. Like you can, yeah, it definitely sounds like 
it's a whole Mennonite thing in a way, like super entrepreneurial. And I've always admired that. I live in Ohio and there's like a big Amish community here and they're just like very admirable people, I think. So it's got to be in your DNA. Yeah. I mean, I think so. I also, I just, both my branches of my family are very entrepreneurial. And I recently learned actually that my grandmother owned real estate on her own in Lancaster, like back in the day, like in the thirties, I was like, she bought it on her own as a young single woman and, you know, worked outside the home, did all this stuff. And she was moving and shaking in the thirties and all my other grandmothers did really cool stuff. So I think it was inevitable that I would do all sorts of business things. (laughs) Yeah, that's really cool. I wanted to ask real quick on like on the property, do you, you know, you had your experience in Mongolia. Are you going to build any kind of alternative structures on the farm or is that not part of the plan? Yes, it's definitely part of the plan. So I want to build some experiments. I have a few ideas for experiments. I want to do things like using straw that we create here on the property to build a small building. I want to try to build something that is like the houses that are here, these stones for this house the logs for this house were all within yards of where the house is. So what would be the modern equivalent? How could I do that? There's a brick house, a log house, and a stone house. So I'll make the straw house. We're going to keep the three little pigs kind of going. So I want to make a straw building with straw that we create here on the farm. I've been really getting into learning more about gardening and farming. So I've got a whole bunch of ideas about different regenerative processes that whether it's for the land or also for buildings and greenhouses that use earth cooling and warming and this kind of stuff. So basically, yeah, I just, I would love to do a whole series of experiments here on the land and see, see what happens. And yeah, the nice thing about your situation is like, you've got the canvas to do that. It sounds like you've, you're really fortunate in a lot of ways to be able to have the land, to have the structures and to do these experiments, which it's fun stuff. Yeah, for sure. That book that I had mentioned earlier before we started called uh, Design Outlaws on the Ecological Frontier. It's got all kinds of stuff like that, like straw bale construction and earth ships and geodesic domes and all kinds of, you know, stuff that's pretty alternative, but very cool. Yeah. I think there's a lot to be learned from it. You know, I want to try to figure out how to do composting toilets and all this kind of stuff in a way that isn't like stinky and gross, right? Like I want to do this for like people, like sort of normal people who are not sort of into these things or like, ew, I don't want that. Or I'm not interested in alternative stuff or that's, you know, too hippy dippy for me or whatever. And I'm like, no, actually this makes a lot of financial sense as well. I'm looking at renovating one of our barns into a potential Airbnb or guest house or something. And in order to do that, I would need to put in a septic field, which would mean taking, you know, a quarter of an acre out of cultivation. And it would have to be like a six foot tall sand mound because the soil doesn't park around here because it's so wet. And it would be, you know, a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars by the time I'm all done with it. What if I got a composting toilet or that actually works and is cool and isn't stinky and doesn't look stupid or designed one or figured out one? I mean, that's a financial thing. It's not just like good for the land and the earth. It is that. And also it will be the thing that makes a project pencil, right? Yeah, this is totally random, but there's one called the Clivus Multrum, which I just love the name. It's called the Clivus Multrum and it's just like exactly what you need for the, uh, you know, so you don't have to build a septic system. Yeah, I've kind of gone down that rabbit hole myself. So it's fun stuff. We've kind of, we're approaching like a little past an hour here. Do you have time for a quick fire round? Yeah, sure. 
Cool. So I know you're a huge reader and I wanted to hear what book you think I should read. Like what's been a super impactful book in the last year or so, maybe over COVID that you read that really made a big impact on your life? Wow. I usually like to have more time to think about a question like that because I always blank when someone asks me that. So, I mean, I read a lot of things that are not related to business or architecture and that is on purpose. I read a lot of things I've been on, like I mentioned, I'm reading a ton right now about organic farming and um, small scale organic farming right now. I mean, I've read like 20 books in the last 10 days. So like that kind of stuff. But I was also on a pretty big um, and have been on a pretty big kick reading books about 1960s Apollo program and Gemini program and all that kind of stuff. So space race stuff. I think some of that stuff to me is so fascinating because it's describing a fascinating decade in American history where we said, well, we haven't even sent, we just sort of sent someone up, you know, Alan Shepard, like up for 15 minutes and he landed and like, that was it. And then Kennedy says, P.S. We're going to send someone to the moon and bring him back safely. And then that, that became like a thing that everyone put on a piece of paper and posted above their desk at NASA. And like, 400,000 people worked on that program at its height. And I think the the number of lessons that I've learned about management, communication, tracking progress, you can't mess up in space. Like you can't, you can mess up in construction all the time, but you cannot mess up in space. It's, there's no room for error. So reading a series of these books actually, where they're, they're talking through exactly how they made this happen. I mean, it's fun to read about the astronauts and like they're cool guys and like that's really fun and the stories, but actually the nuts and bolts of how they made a project like this happen and brought all of those people together to actually make it hundreds of subcontractors. You know, this is the person who made the spacesuit. This is the person who made the valves on the thing that connects the other thing. How did they orchestrate that in the 60s with no email? And, you know, it's so sort of management, communication, quality control, creativity, engineering. It's been profoundly impactful to me to read that kind of stuff. And manifesting a vision, you know, like John F. Kennedy, you know, like that. That's right. It's fascinating. So much that goes into it. Were you into science fiction like as a younger kid? Not really science fiction that much, but I've always loved sort of the space program and that kind of stuff. One of my many nerdy interests. See, there's my Saturn V in the background. Do you see him? Or, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Love the scale it. model. Yep. That's very cool. Yeah. So, I mean, some of the, the great books there, you know, Andrew Chaikin wrote an amazing book about just, uh, that's what I would start with if people are interested in learning more about how it all works. How do you spell his last name? C-H-A-I-K-I-N, I believe. And he wrote a book that goes through the Apollo program and just kind of describes how it happened. It's, it's very readable. And then my other favorite space book is um, Mike Collins' book, Carrying the Fire. So he was the command module pilot on Apollo 11. So he famously got the closest to the moon, but like didn't get to, you know, you know, Buzz and Neil are like down on the moon and he has to circle above. So he's a fantastic writer. He's a really, really good writer. He's funny and engaging and I've read a lot of the astronauts' books, and they're like engineers and test pilots. But Mike Collins is a real writer. So anyway, those are two good ones. I'll put it in the show notes. So next one, you've done a ton of traveling. Where is one place our listeners, you would say they've got to go? Oh my gosh. Which is a hard question, but like on your journey, what was one place that was like, I really want to get back there? Basically, 
I would say that it's not the it's not the best metric to say where would I want to go back because some of the places I went I would never want to go back. It was very difficult to travel there, but I am so glad I did. Like being in the Democratic Republic of Congo, that was really rough. Like that was on another trip. That that was really rough. That was I wouldn't I don't particularly have an interest in repeating, you know, that experience, getting in a knife fight, like losing all my bags, walking across the border on foot. But that experience, putting yourself in a position within bounds where you are deeply uncomfortable, it's the difference between traveling and vacationing, right? That's not a vacation. No, that's not. I don't even know if that's traveling. Like there's, there's another word for it, but that's a little like, bit surviving, a little bit yeah, of surviving. Yeah. Yeah. But that trip, you know, was absolutely life-changing. I mean, just life-changing. You know, I was in um, Tanzania, Rwanda, and Congo, and I had friends in Rwanda who I was staying with and experiencing things from the standpoint of people who live somewhere, I think is really, really great. So whatever you can do to go somewhere and either stay with someone who lives there or get connected to people who are actually living there, then you get to see a side of the place. And that goes for places that are easy to travel. I mean, I've been to Italy like seven times. I studied there a bunch of times and I'm going back this October. Like Italy is so easy to travel and it's so fun. It's so great. And so I've been back there the most number of times, but I also, some of the places that I've been, I don't, wouldn't choose to go back, but I'm so, so, so glad that I went. Yeah, that's awesome. Great adventures that you've had. I really have loved hearing about it. For our listeners that want to reach out to you, learn more about you, we didn't mention your newsletter. I wanted to ask about that a little bit. Can you talk real quickly about the newsletter, if you would? Yeah, so it's called Building Knowledge and it's on Substack. And uh, I just try to collect uh, in longer form a lot of the thoughts that I have. Some of it comes from Twitter feeds that I expand on or that I have a list of topics that I'm just working through. Or sometimes people will ask me, hey, can you write about X and Y? Or I have a question about this or that. And the idea is it covers all parts of what I know about building. So, you know, for an audience of people, who want to build or who are building. And that could be owners, developers, contractors, architects, people who are interested in all this kind of stuff. I try to keep the content more intro level because I think that there's a lot of people who, especially in real estate, who don't have a lot of construction experience. And it's sort of become one of my recent passions in the last year or two to help developers understand more about construction. Well, I saw you post something about that, like maybe offering a course on that to developers, real estate people that you know don't have the basic construction knowledge that, I mean, I think you kind of need, <laughs> frankly, but a lot of people don't have it. So is that something that's in the works? Yeah. So, I mean, I already do consulting with developers where I work with them one-on-one. -on -one to help them through processes like this. But yeah, I'm looking into probably more like a seminar and less of like a course. I mean, I've taught many courses over my time of being an adjunct professor, but none of them would sort of easily translate to what developers might want to know. So it would be quite a lot of work to make like a full course. So I'd probably, probably interested in doing more like seminars and keeping it more, keeping it a little looser. So, but yes, I would love to do that. Cool. I definitely want to find out more about that. I wanted to hear how has Twitter impacted your career, your life? Like how, what's your experience been with it? So Twitter, it's sort of changed my life, honestly. Like I know so many interesting people and I've learned so much from everyone on Twitter. I, it's just, it's kind of blowing my mind how 
the connections that I've made and the, the people that I know and can get their counsel on certain things or be inspired by their work. And I like, you know, there aren't too many architects on Twitter. Um, and I like being at the table where decisions are getting made, you know, like, or among people where decisions are getting made, you know, developers. So I like participating in those conversations. So yeah, I've gotten plenty of work off Twitter, some wonderful friends, business relationships, all kinds of things. Yeah. Well, you're, you've been an important voice on there. I mean, I really think you've contributed a ton to the community. I tell every young person, and I don't know that people really understand it. Like you've got to get on real estate Twitter, like really, like go do it right <laughs> right now. Like it's such a wealth of information that it's like huge. Well, and I also think it gives me a chance to dispel a lot of the myths about what architects do and why they're important to the process. And I think that's also very important to me personally, but also to our industry. There's a sense that developers and architects butt heads or contractors and architects butt heads or developers and contractors butt heads. And the reality is that, sure, that happens. It's a tough industry. But when we understand more about what everybody has to do and what the problems are that they're facing and the challenges, then we can work together to make buildings. That's why we're all there. Like that's We're there to make buildings together. So we should understand each other's role and support each other to make it happen. So talking about Twitter, what's the best way for people to reach out to you? Is it through Twitter or there are other ways? Talk to us about a couple of ways people can find out more about you. Yeah. So Twitter is the easiest. So at MWModinger and you can DM. DMs are open. You know, I try to answer as many as I can. And my business through my website is runciblestudios.com. Um, if you fill out a form there, it goes right to my inbox. So it's me usually answering. Um, you can learn all about our services and what we do. And and then also our Instagram, which is at Runcible Studios. I, I just can't get it to grow like Twitter. So I'm always looking for people to follow me there too. That's where all the pretty pictures are. <laughs> Yeah, right. You've got, what, at least 20,000 followers on Twitter, right? Almost. It's like 19.8. Let's get, well, hopefully this episode will push you over the edge. Marilyn, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate your time and uh, thanks for uh, spending some time with us today. Yeah, of course. It was an absolute pleasure. Okay, folks, that's all I had for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you back here real soon. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.